All right, so we are in 1 John, and we are going to continue until the, the first weeks of uh, December where we hit Advent. And I am excited about this book because as you've realized already, if you've been here for any of the sermons, uh, John is not interested in any way in like being fuzzy or being unclear, like he is light and dark. He's like, you're a liar or you're a truth teller. You're either doing good or you're doing evil. You're either in with God or you're not. He's like super clear. He's not afraid to draw lines. And so as we have tried to faithfully bring out what's in the text, not add to it, not add our own flavor to it, but, but simply explain it, bring it out, and try to apply it, uh, you've seen this. You've seen John's kind of hard-hitting clarity. And tonight is not going to be any different. You know, John, if you will, is, is just swinging, and he's swinging for the knockout. And he's going to talk about Antichrist tonight. He's going to talk about uh, you don't have the Father if you don't have the Son. Like, he's just really clear, and he's not afraid to be offensive, right? So John is not, you know, if, if John was on Twitter, right, and he was famous, and he was, like, tweeting out his verses, like, he would be canceled immediately, right? Like, see, that's the kind of letter this is. And so... Christians can't be afraid of like really hard truth claims. Christians can't be afraid of lines drawn in the sand and say, if you're on this side, you're in, and if you're on this side, you're not in. Like we have to be able to own that, but also be able to proclaim it, but listen, with gentleness and respect. We never want to do it arrogantly. We never want to do it self-righteously. We never want to uh, be on the right side of truth simply because I'm right. And that's a temptation. I'm right, you're wrong. Therefore, I'm bad. Or I'm good, you're bad, rather. If you're bad, you're Michael Jackson bad. All right, let's get, let's get moving here. So John in 1 John 2, 18, uh, calls the church or those whom he's writing to children. He, he considers them his children whom he is spiritually fathering. And he says, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. All right, let's stop there. So John, it, uh, it comes out and he says, listen, it's the last hour. All right, and that's a little epic, right? This is it. This is the last hour. This is the closing scene. This is it. The curtain is about to close. And what's his reasoning for that? He says, as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, singular, so now many Antichrists, plural, have come. In light of that, therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So his reasoning is this. Because you've heard Antichrist is coming, and because you've heard there are many Antichrists, plural, Therefore, we know it is the last hour. Now, interestingly, you hear this kind of talk coming from Jesus, which is obviously where John got it. He was, uh, of his own admission, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was in that inner circle of Peter, James, John, and Andrew. He was, he was super close to Jesus. And so clearly, he was paying attention when Jesus was predicting uh, the coming doom, his judgment 
Okay, now there's debate about Matthew 24. Is it, is it in the past, as in like 70 AD, but future as to when Jesus prophesied it? Is it uh, past and future? Is it all future? There's all kinds of debate, and we're not gonna get into that right now. But what I want you to see here is this is where Jesus, or John is getting what he's saying here. So this is after the disciples say to Jesus, look, look at all these magnificent buildings in this temple. And he prophesies, you know, not one of these stones will be left upon another. That's coming. This whole temple's getting ripped down. And we do know that that did happen in 70 AD under Titus when they burned the temple down and they literally removed the bricks from one another. They leveled the temple. So Jesus was right about that, which is why many scholars do think that Matthew 24 was prophesying 70 AD and not some future, you know, distant 2035 or whatever. As he sat down on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? The temple being ripped down, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Remember Jesus said, John said, this is the last hour, end of the age. And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah. Christ means anointed one, Messiah. So Jesus is saying, look, be careful that no one leads you astray because a lot of people are gonna come around and they're gonna say, I'm the Messiah, here I am. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place for the end is not yet. And then Peter, on that first sermon, after the Holy Spirit comes, this is the first sermon at Pentecost. There are uh, all kinds of different nationalities present, all Jewish in ethnicity or proselyte Jewish, and they all speak all these different languages. The Holy Spirit comes upon the 120, the church at that time, and he enables them to either one, speak in different languages of the people there, or he allows the people to hear in their own languages. And the charge of the people is, these men are drunk. These men are drunk. Look, look at all these people acting so strangely. And Peter speaks up and he says, these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now, he's going to take a prophecy from Joel, and he's going to say, this is being fulfilled now in your seeing and hearing. And he quotes Joel, in the last days. Now, friends, this was 2,000 years ago. In the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And here's, here's the argument. Verse 17 says, and in the last days it shall be, 
God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And so Peter is saying this prophecy is fulfilled right here, right now. Now, I think there is a later fulfillment because at the end here it says the day of the Lord. That has not happened yet, I don't think. His coming back, the great judgment where he smashes all his enemies and he takes over, you know, all rule and authority on the earth, that has not happened yet. And that day is coming, okay? But here, Peter calls the last days this day that you're experiencing. And this was 2,000 years ago. And so, I think what we have to remember here is when John says it's the last hour, he wrote this about 2,000 years ago. He was not necessarily saying in time, but he was talking theologically, okay? Here's what John Stott says. He, Jesus, was expressing a theological truth, or or rather, uh, uh, John was expressing a theological truth rather than making a chronological reference, okay? And so, the truth is, this is the last days right now in 2023, It is still the last hour right now, meaning at any time Jesus could come back and say, it's done, it's over, I'm taking over. If if it was true 2,000 years ago when this is written, it is still the case now. Now, Jesus himself said, no one knows the day or the hour, and so it is foolish for us to try to predict and prophesy and imagine what day and what year and what month and try to read the signs. People have been doing that for decades and decades and decades, and they've all been wrong, all of them, okay? And so we should not be trying to do that. We should not waste our time trying to say, this is when the Lord will return and wrap up, you know, this rebellion, okay? We know that uh, the Lord is patient, not willing that any of His own should perish, but that all of them should come to repentance, And so when the last of his own comes to repentance, then he will come back. But we don't know when that is or who that is or what generation that will be. And so while we're still here, we have a job to do. And what is it? To make disciples. We we have a job description. You are to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That's what I gave you to do. Teaching them to obey all I've commanded, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and doing good on the earth until I come back. And so John is saying, look, this is the last hour. Why? Because you've heard that Antichrist is coming, and many Antichrists have come. Now, we, we like to get all weird about Antichrist. If you've checked out any of the Christian fiction literature, it is, it is rife with stories about the Antichrist and his ability to, to amass world power and world influence. And, and the truth is, anybody who opposes the gospel is Antichrist. Right? So, so here he's saying many Antichrists have come. Anybody that is against Jesus is an Antichrist. At one time, probably you were antichrist, and I was, most definitely. Now, was I, according to, you know, Revelation and, and Thessalonians, the man of lawlessness, you know, this, this one who embodies evil itself prophesied in Daniel? No, but there are many antichrists. Anyone who opposes God's rule, anyone who opposes the gospel, anyone who is seeking to deceive people away from the truth, they are antichrists. That's what John says here. 
And, and he actually says that these antichrists, plural, were a part of whoever he's writing to. We know this because of verse 19. He says, they, the antichrists, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Okay? And so here, John is doing a few things. He is showing that the antichrists, whoever they are, that left, they, they defected from the gospel, they defected from the truth, they're probably teaching error now, and they're seeking to draw people away from the truth. He's saying they left our number, they left Christ. Why? How do we explain that? Because they were never in Christ. Okay? Now, this text, I think, is one of the clearest texts that we have. It's not the only one, but it's one of the clearest texts to explain how it is that you have had friends in the past or converts in the past or even children in the past who once seemed to be on fire for God walking with him strongly, evangelizing to the lost, reading, memorizing, even preaching the Bible, and where are they today? They're opposed to God. They're antichrist. How do we explain that? Well, the reason we explain that is, or how we explain that is the end of verse 19. They were not of us, though they appeared to be of us. Now, this isn't the only place that we see this in Scripture. Here, here's one of the clearest, okay? This is Jesus telling his stories, parables, teaching uh, those who were listening, and he, and he uses a farming illustration, which they were very familiar with. And so, he says, a sower went out to sow, meaning a farmer went out to plant seeds. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and they grew up and choked them. Other seed fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear let him hear. And I know some of you were wondering, every time Eddie prays, he says, some, you know, let, let the seed of your word fall on good ground, right? And he says, 30, 60, 100. Now you know where he gets it from, okay? He's just quoting scripture. All right, now, now this is, without explanation here, this is cryptic. And interestingly, Jesus did this on purpose sometimes. He would tell a story, and then he would like walk away from the crowds, and he would leave them like befuddled. But then, when those who cared enough to ask him and to follow him, true, true disciples, they would ask him the meaning. Then he would open up the parables to them. And so, this is what happens later in Matthew 13. I'll show it to you. To his disciples, he says, here then is the parable of the sower. He gives the meaning. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. What's the word of the kingdom? This is the message about the king, who is Jesus, and the kingdom, how do we get into the kingdom, and even that there is a kingdom, and it is overcoming this present dark kingdom, all of that, okay? The good news about the king and the kingdom. When anyone hears this word, in other words, the gospel, when anyone hears the gospel and does not understand it, the evil one, we could say that's Satan and demons, comes and snatches away 
what has been sown in the heart. This is what was sown along the path. And so you remember the story, right? The, uh, the, the fields would have footpaths through them. Uh, and, and so the, if you've ever walked on a path in the woods, like a hiking trail, usually there's, there's woods and weeds and plants growing all around, but then along the path, it is packed dirt. And so if a seed falls on it, it just sits on top of the packed dirt. And then other animals and birds come along and they eat the seed off of it. He is saying here that uh, when people hear and don't understand, Satan comes along and snatches that word right out of them. They don't even get a chance to, to meditate on it. It's immediately snatched away. And I think, personally, C.S. Lewis does one of the best jobs in his Screwtape Letters book of explaining how this works practically, okay? So you go and read that on your own, but C.S. Lewis, Screwtape Letters, how Satan and demons distract people from even hearing and meditating on and understanding the gospel. What about the second one? As for, the, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy. All right, stop. What does that look like? Okay, that's somebody who receives the good news, and man, they are fired up. They not just receive it, but they receive it with joy. They're excited. You're like, yo, this is great. Look at this person. They are fired up about Jesus and about the good news and about the word and about church and about evangelism. They receive it with joy, yet... Yet, he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, just a little while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, on account of this good news, this gospel, immediately he falls away. And so for this second one, not only does there appear to be a receiving of the good news, a receiving of Jesus, we would say born again, saved, headed to heaven because there's joy and there's excitement, but what happens? What happens? Persecution, tribulation, and falling away. So what appeared to be real was not. It only appeared to be real, but man, did they look excited about Jesus. What about the third? As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This is a danger, I think, in the West especially. People get excited about Jesus. They get excited about forgiveness of sins. They get excited about eternal life, but man, does the world have a lot to offer. Six figures, nice houses, nice cars, nice vacations. And it's like, yeah, Jesus is cool for a little bit. And then the pursuit of the world and worldly things eventually chokes out the interest in God at all. And it proves there was nothing there to begin with. So is it wrong to have a nice car, have a nice house, have nice clothes, go on vacations? It's not. But friends, you got to be really careful that your affections don't go from God onto what God created. We're always battling in the heart, creator versus creation for our affections. And the creator must have our affections over what he has made, or we become the idolaters of Romans 1. 
and we worship and serve created things rather than the Creator. And so the Christian's heart, the, the right orientation is we love God and serve Him and appreciate Him, not just to get His gifts, but we love Him through the gifts. And if He chooses to take them away, we still love Him. And we say with Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. And then what? Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that's how you know. Am I in it for the stuff that God can give or am I in it for God? We'll see when persecution comes, when loss comes, when hard comes, and when the blessings you thought would come with God don't come. Will you cling to God or will you leave Him and go after what He has created for help and comfort? Now again, I, I am taking the flavor of John in 1 John here, right? I'm saying hard things to you. Why would I do that? Because, friends, you need to be warned. The Bible is, Jesus is not shy to tell us the truth. And so we need to receive these things and believe them and take them as warnings for ourselves. Okay, and so this third one looked, it looked legit, okay? What happened? Receives cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke. So it looks real. What about the fourth? As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word, understands it, and indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold, another 60, and another 30. Okay? And so real Christians over their lifetime bear fruit. Okay? Jesus says, you will know them by their fruit. Now, what this means is both character and attitude, this is the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So your character changes so that you look more like Jesus because the Holy Spirit is living through you. But it also looks like bearing fruit in doing actual good in the world. Not just do, listen, not just not doing the bad things. Many of us are content to say, hey, I used to be a drunk, I don't drink anymore. I used to be an addict and I'm not using drugs anymore. I used to look at pornography and I don't look at pornography anymore. And you think you're good. Your Christianity is all what you don't do. What about what you're supposed to do in the positive? Right, you're going out of your way to sacrifice yourself for others you're being generous and not greedy. You're helping other people. You're doing good even at cost to self. I mean, all that is also a part of Christianity. It's not just what you don't do, it's what you do. In fact, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. He didn't say, if you obey my commands, the Father will love you. No, he said, you will prove your love for me by the keeping of my commands. Okay, and so, so this is the bearing fruit. And for some, they bear a lot of fruit, a hundredfold. So imagine you put one seed in the ground, one tomato seed, and you get back a hundred tomatoes, each in themselves containing hundreds of seeds. And that's amazing. Imagine the yield if you planted one seed and got a hundredfold from every seed you planted. I mean, that is a fruitful life right there. And that's what we should be praying for, guys. 
Like Jesus did save us unto good works. He wants us to do good in the world. He wants us to make a difference. He wants us to make an impact. He wants you to be focused on eternal things, not just temporary things. Okay? And so while we can enjoy temporary things, like there, there are several series that I stream, right? And I'm committed to them. But trust me, on Judgment Day, I don't think I'm going to get rewarded for all the shows I've streamed. Right? He's not going to be like, you've streamed 100 shows, well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, you've streamed 1,000 shows, well done, good and faithful servant. You have the bigger, you know. No. It's going to be, what did you actually do in the world that had positive results for the kingdom of God? What did you do? And so here, let's just, let's just make it real clear, okay? Three looked saved. One was. One was. And you know what will prove time and persistence? Now, friends, I I sadly, as, let's see, 1999, I became a Christian. In 24 years now, being a Christian, I've seen many leave the faith. Many who I was absolutely convinced, this, this guy, this guy's on fire. That girl is the real thing. And where are they? They're living for Satan. They're living for self. They're not in a local church. They're not confessing Christ. They're not doing good in the world. They're living for themselves. What happened? John would say, they went out from us because they were never of us. And their going out from us proved that they were never of us. Now, that's scary. So what do we do? How do we make sure that we don't go out, that we're not seed two and three, Friends, the only thing you can do is cling to Christ. Ask him for mercy and grace, persevering grace. And then what you can do, this is what you can do. You can continually put yourself under what we've always called, the church has always called the normal means of grace. Sustaining grace, not saving grace. Sustaining your faith. What is it? The reading of scripture, praying, fellowship, worship, taking of communion, practicing spiritual disciplines. These are all what we would call the normal means of sustaining grace. They sustain your spiritual life. Ultimately, it's God through these that sustains you. But you do have to take action. And so I would encourage you, friends, if you are not practicing spiritual disciplines, if you are lax in your relationship with God, that is dangerous. That is really dangerous. You have no idea what you're doing to your own soul to make it cold and eventually hard towards God if you're just apathetic. You're like, yeah, Jesus, he saved me. That's it. I'm saved and I'm safe, and that's it. That's not good. We should be growing in our relationship with him. And now I've, I've got not much time left, and I've only got through one or two verses, and so we have to move on. Though I want to stay here, I can't. And so... <clears throat> Let's see, what was I thinking with this one? Oh, perseverance. Okay, so this is what we want to do, okay? Let's read Jesus in Matthew 24. Again, this is, this is still that, 
warning passage, the, the, the sitting on the Mount of Olives, looking at the temple, warning of judgment. And so here he says, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. He's speaking to the disciples, right? And that happened. If you know your church history, the disciples died brutal deaths. And so he was literally telling them what was going to happen. And they, and they did. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many, look, will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Those would be the antichrists, plural. Notice what they're doing. They're leading many astray from the truth, from the real, from the authentic, and they are the false, and they want to bring people along with them into the false. And because lawlessness will increase, will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, both love for God and love for neighbor. But watch verse 13. This is us. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. See the endurance in there? And so we, we do get saved, quote unquote, in the past. When we receive Jesus, when we ask him for mercy and grace, when we say, forgive me of my sins, I need you, I am a, a sinner in need of a savior. We come to that moment, right? And Jesus has mercy on us and saves us. That's in the past at some point. But friends, we continue to be saved along the way saved from current sins that so easily entangle us, saved from wrong thinking about God, saved from wrong thinking about others, saved from wrong actions, saved from all kinds of darkness. He saves us. It's called sanctification. But what's happening? You're being saved progressively, not from the penalty of your sins, which is hell, but from current consequences of sin, and sin always has current consequences. Always. Make no mistake, if you didn't get the consequences from the sin you just sinned, you just planted a seed and it's going to grow and bear fruit eventually. It will. Paul said in Galatians, God will not be mocked. Whatever you reap, you will sow. So, So don't play with sin, friends. Because it will get you eventually. And God is much more patient than us. He'll let the consequences come much later than you or I would let the consequences come. But then in the future, we will be saved from the presence of sin completely. New heavens, new earth, no indwelling sin, no sinners around us. Isn't that amazing? Like, you won't be a sinner, and neither will anybody else. So, 1 Corinthians 13, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not irritable. It's not easily angered. Everybody all the time towards you. Man, I'd just be happy if that was my wife (laughs) or my husband. Wouldn't that be great? Or if I could be that to my wife or my kids, or you. But friends, I'm a miserable lover in that sense. Patient, kind, not irritable, keeping no record of wrongs. We're terrible. That's why we need a Savior. That's why Jesus loved perfectly in our place. 
right? And so here, what, what is our job? Look, and then, or rather, but he who endures to the end, verse 13, will be saved. Notice the will be saved. That's that final salvation where it's realized. Friends, what is your job? It is to persevere. This is, if you want doctrine and theology, this is called the perseverance of the saints. And ultimately, only God enables us to persevere. But again, you have to work out your own salvation, Philippians 2, 12, and 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to act or to do according to His good pleasure. And so while you are doing, God is doing through you. And we take that by faith. And we endure and we persevere and we continue to hold on and we don't give up. Even if we're hanging on by one hand and the abyss is underneath us and we're just about to let go, friends, don't let go. Do everything in your power to not let go. Call for help. Yell out, grab my hand. And one of your fellow church members will come along and grab your hand. And all the while, not knowing, it was God orchestrating the whole thing. We're never without him. He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I won't leave you as orphans. And though he is invisible and we can't see him, his people, the church, are his visible body parts. It's 1 Corinthians 12, right? And so we help each other persevere. It's part of the good that we're supposed to do. In fact, let's see how close we are. We'll, we'll go through one more text, and then I'll get to that, okay, in one second. So continuing, John says this, they went out from us because they were never of us. And it might become plain that they were not of us. Verse 20, but you, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Okay, so verse 20, the Holy One is, is referencing the Holy Spirit, okay? And we, true Christians, the true church, have been anointed or filled, other, other biblical language, with the Holy Spirit Himself. And so, the third person of God, the, the, the third person of the Trinity, anoints us and gives us the knowledge that we need. And the knowledge part uh, goes to 21. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. And so, we, we probably should just get rid of verse 21 there, at least the 21, and read, and you all have knowledge, continuing the thought. I write to you, not because you don't know the truth, because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth, okay? Now, remember, he, he's talking about antichrists who want to draw people away, and they themselves have left, and no doubt they were trying to draw others with them away to their lie. And he's saying, but you, you have the Holy Spirit to keep you and to guard you, and you have knowledge. You don't need their false knowledge or their secret knowledge. You don't need that. You have the knowledge of the truth, and no lie is of the truth. Verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies 
that Jesus is the Christ. And so here's part of the lie that was happening. These antichrists were denying that Jesus was the Messiah. That's what he says. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Christ means Messiah, the promised one of God, the anointed one, the Savior. And so whoever these false teachers were, these antichrists who went out and are now trying to draw others with them, they're denying that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the big problem. It's the big lie. And John says there is no truth in the lie. And verse 23, he says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now listen, I understand that verse 23 is really exclusive. Read that really slow. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And so, I'm sure you've heard this. Some of you, you've probably said this in the past. I hear this in, in arguments. I hear this in conversations. I see this in movies. Many people will say, listen, I mean, all religions are pretty much the same, and all roads pretty much lead to God, and everyone who worships is basically worshiping the same God. And this is the flavor of that like coexist bumper sticker with all the religious symbols spelling out coexist. Here's two major problems with that. Major problems. Number one, if you study the actual religions, they're all wildly divergent and different. In who they claim is God and how they claim you get right with God, and how they claim who speaks for God, and what holy books are real or not. Wildly different. Number two, the person who says that doesn't quite realize that that is a highly arrogant statement. And they're actually trying to be humble and gracious and tolerant and liberal in like the liberty sense. So in their minds, they think they're being very pluralistic and tolerant, but here's what they're actually doing. They're saying, I know, I have higher knowledge, and I understand that all these religions, though they all claim wildly divergent things, are actually the same road to the same God. They're all the same thing. And so they're claiming have higher knowledge than all of the teachings of all these other religions. That's what they're claiming. Now, they don't realize they're claiming that, but that's what they're saying. If you buy that, if you really believe that in your heart, okay, you're one who says, look, all religions are basically the same, all roads lead to God, and everyone who worships sincerely will eventually get to God. You're literally saying that you have greater knowledge and understanding than what all of these teachings of all these religions claim. You're higher than, so you're, you're, here's what you're saying. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but me, but by me. And you're saying, Jesus, you're wrong. I'm right. Many people can come to God the Father through many ways. You're one way. I understand that. Jesus, I'm sorry you don't understand that. 
right? Now, no one would say that that way, but when you say that, that's what you're saying. Let's say you're a Muslim, okay? You're saying, look, I understand that Muhammad claims to be the prophet who reveals Allah, but he doesn't know. I know. Really, Muhammad and Jesus are basically the same person, and they're both telling you the way to God. Friends, when you start to study the different religions, the Hindus have six million gods, right? The ancient Greeks had all, the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods were wildly, you know, crazy. The, the African ancient animist religions, you know, there's spirits in everything. The wildly different beliefs, and they can't all be right. And so, here's what John is claiming. Let's look at it very carefully. If you don't have Jesus, he's saying, you don't have God. Because who is the Father? God the Father. The one who said, let there be, and there was. So, what does that mean? That means any person, any religious system that doesn't have Jesus, listen, for who he claimed to be, not who they claim he is. He's not just a prophet. He's not, you know, Michael the archangel's brother or Satan's brother. He's not created, the first created being through whom God created. No, he is the creator. He is who he claimed to be in the word. If that is not the Jesus you have and, rece- and, and have received, then friends, as much as you think you have God, John would tell us you don't have God. Okay. And so here is an illustrative passage. This is uh, during the Last Supper. This is what's called the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus is talking with his disciples. He's about to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says to his disciples, you, you know the way where I am going. Thomas, one of his disciples, said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You'd do very well, every one of you, to memorize John 14, 6. You should write that down, and you should memorize that. Jesus himself said, I am the way, I am truth embodied, and I am the life. Life originates with me, and no one has life without me, eternal or spiritual. And no one comes to God except through me. You should memorize that. It's a really important verse. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Now, who's he talking to? He's talking to Thomas. He's like, Thomas, if you, would, if you really knew me, you'd know the Father too. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip, another one of the disciples, said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Now, now he just asked, show us the Father, and Jesus' answer was, haven't I been with you so long? and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on account of the works themselves. Now, this is mysterious. He's talking about the Trinity here. 
And because Jesus is the anointed one, the Christ, he is referring to not the Father himself living inside of Jesus, but he's referring to the Spirit of God, the Father, who is who? The Holy Spirit, who came upon Jesus when? At his baptism, and remained on him. And so, interestingly, if we were to, to explore this John 13, 14, 15, 16, we would see Jesus then later says, look, I and the Father will come and we will make our home in each believer. And so what could he be talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is often called the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit. Same person, uniquely connected to the Trinity. And so what Jesus is saying is like, look, I don't do anything on my own. My works are not my own. My words are not my own. I am uniquely connected to the Father, and He is moving through me. And if you don't have me, you don't have the Father. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What does He mean? He means that the Father and I are one. My attitude towards sinners is the same as God the Father's attitude towards sinners. The way I love and provide and heal is the same way the Father loves and provides and heals. As I came on a mission not to condemn but to save, so the Father sent me on a mission not to condemn but to save. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. What did God the Father send the Son to do? Not on a condemnation mission, but on a salvation mission. It's not that Jesus and the Father have divergent plans. No, the Father and Jesus are on the same exact wavelength, and step by step, they are together. And that's why Jesus can say, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I have come to reveal him. Okay? And so Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And John tells us that if you don't have Jesus, you don't have the Father either. Verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father, but whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And so no doubt verse uh, 20 through 23 are deeply connected. Okay, so let's not just isolate the verses. The antichrists are saying that Jesus is not the Messiah, yet they're claiming to have another way to God. And John is saying, no, if you don't have the Son for who, as he claimed to be, you don't have the Father either. And so, whoever confesses the Son as the Son of God and as the Messiah also has the Father. All right, let's finish this up. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And so here, we're looking at holding on to what you had from the beginning. Now, the beginning here is referring to when these converts, whoever he's writing to, when they first heard the gospel or when they first believed, okay? When they first heard and believed, let that word abide or remain with you and in you, and if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, meaning you don't deviate from it, you don't leave it for something else, something false, then 
then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Notice the conditions here. He's saying, only if you remain believing what you did believe at the first, will you remain in the Son and in the Father. But if you leave that for something else, then you prove that you never had it to begin with. They went out from us because they were never of us. And their going out from us proves that they were never of us. Now, Hebrews 3, 12, and 14, some of you brothers who were at the foundry, I touched on this a couple Fridays ago. The writer to the Hebrews, he's writing to Hebrews, tempted to leave Jesus, leave the gospel, and revert back to Judaism, or at least revert to a version of Judaism that receives Jesus but also needs to keep all of the dietary laws, the calendar laws, the civil laws, etc. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you somewhere. Where? To fall away from the living God. All right, so, so we have to believe that verse 12 is possible. That means that you can claim to be a Christian, you could be worshiping in a church, you can say, I believe, I, I, I can hold on to the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, and I'm a gospel man or woman. But if there is an evil, unbelieving heart, it will lead you to something, to fall away. And what will that prove? You never had it to begin with. And so, friends, we must, we must take this warning seriously. Take caution about evil and take caution about an unbelieving heart because these two things will lead you somewhere to fall away. The warning passages in Scripture are real. We should take them serious. But, here's the contrast, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. So, so what? So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see the danger? Sin and its deceptive power. It by nature is evil and it will corrupt anything that it is allowed to. For we have come to share in Christ if, look at that if, if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see, see in both passages, there's this, you need to remain believing what you first believed. You need to hold your original confidence firm to the end, persevering, not deviating, not leaving what you first believed. And here's one more, Paul to the Galatians. He's like, look, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, Paul's talking about himself and his companions who made it to Galatia and preached the gospel, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, you, you see what's happening here. The warnings are replete. I pulled out some of them for you. False teachers, Satan and demons, want to draw real Christians away from the truth and into falseness. And it will often be through the avenue of sin 
and deceitfulness. And we must persevere and remain steadfast, holding to our original confidence, not wavering, not leaving it behind, not saying, I'm going to take a break from that. Friends, that's an evil, unbelieving heart, and it is leading you to fall away from the living God. And so, the the charge in the former passage was, what should the church do? Verse 13, exhort one another every day. Man, you're like, that's a little much, bro. Every day? I mean, come on, is it that serious? Well, this writer's taking it that serious. He's like, it's serious enough that you not fall away, that we at least at minimum encourage and exhort one another every day. So how you doing? Are you being encouraged every day? Are you encouraging someone every day? Probably not. Okay? But, but the gospel writers and the biblical writers take this thing so serious They understand the consequences of you leaving Christ, leaving the faith, diverging to something else that seems attractive and fruitful, and you losing Christ and the Father and eternal life altogether. This is the danger. And so the writer of Hebrews can say, look, please, as long as it's called today that you not be hardened, exhort one another. All right, let's finish. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Okay, so, so persevering, not leaving, what's the promise? Eternal life. Now you imagine that, right? When I was a kid, I remember I always used to try to think of eternity. And, and I remember like getting to a certain point and trying to go further and my mind would just twist, right? And, and I would get a mental block, Right? And just, if you want an exercise tonight, close your eyes and try to imagine eternity future. And, and you're, you'll blow your own mind. We don't have a category for it, but the Bible does. And it says that all people are eternal and we will live forever. And depending on what you do with Jesus depends on where you will have eternal life and with whom you will have eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Notice the, they are intentionally trying to deceive you. You see that? There's malicious intent here, okay? They're trying to deceive you. But the anointing, that's the Holy Spirit, that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. All right, now I don't have time to go through all the the verses that I have, but I'll say this about this. Verse 27 is often abused and misused, and they have no idea that they have no idea what they're reading and saying. Okay, here's how it's often used. The anointing you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. People use this verse to say, look, I don't need any Bible teachers. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be connected to a fellowship. That verse says, all I need is me, my Bible, and the Holy Spirit. Have any of you actually heard this argument? I have. Of course. Yeah, I see many of you have. Here's the problem. The letter is teaching. They don't realize that the very letter that they're pulling this argument from, they don't realize that it is teaching. Therefore, it falls flat right there. Secondly, 
The New Testament is replete with gifts of teachers. One of the qualifications for an elder is must be able to teach. And if God is requiring the leadership of the church to be able to teach, that's what they're supposed to do. It's kind of obvious. Uh, Ephesians 4 is another one. God gave gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. For what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And so what John is not saying here is that you don't need any teachers. You do. That's why he gives the gift of teachers to the church. Here's what he's saying. One helpful commentator They have no need for any instruction that diverges from the gospel. You don't need any teachers that are going to lead you astray. You have the truth. Remain in it. Look, the Holy Spirit is our guide and our keeper, okay? Uh, we don't keep ourselves in the faith. As much as it seems like that is from the text I read, the theological truth is this. God is the one who keeps us. And we get this from John 10 and a number of other places, Romans 8, 28 through 30. There are many places we could see that it is God who is the great keeper of the saints. But for us, practically, what do we do on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? We remain in the truth. We fight to abide in the gospel. We exhort one another. We don't leave. If we're struggling, we call upon our brothers and sisters, etc. All the while, it's God in and through all of it, sustaining us, helping us to persevere. Okay? And so, His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie. You can see the, the lie, the falseness, the antichrist, just as it has taught you abide in him. So John is pleading with his receivers of the the epistle here, remain in what you have received. Don't go after these who have gone out. I know they're calling for you. I know they're they're trying to pull you towards their anti-messianess, their anti-Christness. They want you to take another way to the Father. Don't. Abide in what you've already received, and the reward will be eternal life. And so, friends, we are those who would claim to belong to Jesus. We are those who would say, Jesus' sheep, I'm one of them. God the Father, son or daughter, I'm one of them. Okay? If I abide in the grace, mercy, love, forgiveness, sacrifice, atoning sacrifice of Jesus, I will remain in the Father, in the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. And so let us, friends, remain. Let us abide in the words of 1 John 2 here. Let us cling to Christ and never cling to another. Let us encourage and exhort one another to remain in the faith and remain faithful. Let us build one another up and encourage one another.